Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and today's episode is an absolute cracker. Craig Rucastle is on the show today. Craig has a new show all about climate change. It's called Fight for Planet A. I have watched the first episode which premieres on the ABC Tuesday, August the 11th at 8.30pm but of course you can also catch it on ABC iView if you don't see it when it goes to air. I highly recommend this. I've seen the first episode uh, of this series. I think it's a really important series. I think Craig is super entertaining in the way that he presents all the important information. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure to sit down for him and get so much time with him to delve into his life in a way that I haven't got to previously. So I really hope you're going to enjoy this episode with Craig Rucastle. You may be one of the people who's listening to it early because over at our Patreon page, and I've been plugging the Patreon a fair bit lately because this is independent media, this podcast, and it really pretty much only exists because of you guys. We occasionally get to run an ad, but uh, we mostly exist because of the support you give us on the Patreon page. So if you go to patreon.com slash philosophy, you can sign up there as a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Now, it is in US dollars, so as little as a US dollar per month. At the moment, we've cracked the big uh, thousand subscribers mark, which is fantastic. I'm staring at the Patreon page as I read this, and there is actually, it says to me, there is 1,032 patrons. And we have cracked over the $4,000 a month mark because, of course, we are going towards 5000 which means that we can do two regular episodes per week. Now, we're going to try to make this week an example of that. So what will happen in the future if we get to the 5000 per month is we'll release a brand new episode on a Monday, which is, well, basically on the Monday, uh, it will be an episode with a new guest who hasn't been on Philosophy before. And then on the Thursday or Friday in the week, we'll do a catch-up episode with the previous guests checking in on their life and seeing what they're up to. So that is the format that we're going to try to go with. We're going to give it a little experiment this week and see how it feels. And if you join up on the Patreon page, one of the bonuses you get is that you can get access to the episodes a day early. So we're going to try to put up the uh, episodes for everyone on Patreon a day before we publish them on all the other feeds, and they are advertising free. So if you join up on the Patreon, you'll be emailed the link to an advertising free episode and a day earlier than everybody else. So that is one of the new little bonuses we've got up on the Patreon page. We are going to put other things up there as we go along, but that's the first one that we've decided to do. So a clean feed of the show and also early access to each of the episodes just by joining up even just at the minimum $1 level on the Patreon page. So thank you to everybody who's supporting us on Patreon. We look forward to uh, hopefully getting to that $5,000 per month mark. And we've even cheekily and more ambitiously put in some other levels of aspiration as well and explained what they might mean to the podcast if we get to those levels. So go to the Patreon page, check it out, support me there. Uh, You can send me a message about the show. I promise that I'll respond to every single person who hits me up on the Patreon page. But in the meantime, I really hope you enjoy this episode today with Craig Rucastle. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, very excited to have today's guest on the show. Uh, 
long-time uh, friend of mine from the comedy industry. Well, I've said friend. He might react to that in a different way, but I would like to think a friend of mine from the comedy industry, but not somebody that I have a great opportunity to sit down in a long-form chat with. So I'm really looking forward to today's episode. Recording on a Sunday afternoon, it feels like a nice leisurely time to have this conversation. This is how the podcast starts, I guess. I ask, who are you? Uh, I'm uh, Craig Rucastle. I guess I'm trying to figure out the rest of that um, as to what, what else I am, but uh, <clears throat> it keeps changing, actually. It's funny because I'll, I'll accept you saying friend. It's you saying in the comedy industry is an interesting one because I don't know if I'm, you know, having never done stand-up, I feel like I can't even, I can't say that. So it's, it's strange. I don't know what I am. That used to be the snobbiest of all things that I myself also was extremely guilty of, which is that idea that stand-up is the purest <laughs> form of comedy and those who yeah. don't get up in front of like stand-up audiences somehow don't have that. They haven't, they haven't been to war. You know, they joined the army, but they served at home. Yeah, you know? exactly. It just doesn't feel like it's the same thing. But in these times when the very notion of doing stand-up is pretty much fucked yes. off for the foreseeable future, I feel like that's a pretty arbitrary and ridiculous line to be drawing in the sand. Yeah, but yeah. do you consider yourself to be... I've just watched... You've got a brand new series coming up on the ABC, uh, which is all about um, climate change. I was not aware that we had an issue with climate change, but now that I've watched the first episode of your, your documentary series, um, I, I was wondering how you classify that style of work that you've been doing, War on Waste, in this new series. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I wouldn't call it comedy at all. It's 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 documentary basically, but it's interesting because when we first did War on Waste, I'd have people come up to me and go, "Oh, that's such a funny documentary," and I would be like, "This is the you know the most serious thing I've ever done by far." <clears throat> And I had to be so, you know, I would, I would kind of respond to things, you know, after I would respond with a comedic response to something. And, you know, the directors would say, Craig, we need you to actually engage with this and kind of give your emotional response to it or whatever. And I'd kind of have to do that as well. So, but it was interesting just by having the occasional stunt or by the fact that you occasionally crack a gag in that particular world, it seems a lot more like, you know, it's funny. So look, I, I would just consider it documentary, but I guess it's kind of, it's got a few different little tropes from stuff we've done in the past, I guess. It, well, it certainly does. And I think that it's one of the more effective parts of it, really, because the like climate change clearly is, you know, it's, it's an incredible challenge to communicate with people about climate change at the moment when we're in the middle of this other global yeah, pandemic yeah. that is, you know, getting the fair amount of everybody's attention. But climate change hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't gone on pause for... We haven't been able to bring in stage four lockdowns for climate change. <laughs> you know, it isn't staying at home. It's still out there yeah, doing exactly. this nasty work it, all over it, the it, place. Climate change at the moment is kind of like... You know, if you were to put on a standard, it'd be like COVID in America is where we are. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not being addressed in in the most effective way. I mean, this is probably maybe a little bit better. Maybe it's the UK. I can't I can't tell. But yeah, yeah, no, it is, and it is a really hard thing to communicate about. I mean, it's interesting. I know you've you've done a bit of it in comedy, and I've been asked a couple of times about climate change and comedy, and it's a really hard one. I actually think it's a really tough tough challenge, and it certainly probably doesn't have as much comedy as I would like to get into it because it's it's a tough one. I think. I actually think that seeing trying to see stand-ups try and do it is a really interesting thing. I know yourself and Ballard are probably the, the two main ones I know that have tried to do it. It's a bloody, it's a tough balancing act. Like, like I'm fascinated as to how you take something that serious and 
give it that kind of edge and that kind of comedic edge. Cause, but, but also in a way that doesn't then undermine it so that people go, yeah, it's not really a problem, is it? And that's the, the, that's the hard challenge. It's incredibly difficult. So what was your perspective going into this? Because I'm very fascinated by what you're saying around. It's something that I, I've never worked harder on any material probably, other than I wrote a routine about Indigenous sort of, the Australian Indigenous story, you know, off mm. the back of when the Adam Goods thing was happening in the football. And I remember just putting in like hours, probably weeks, yeah. Of wow. research just to make sure that I was really across every aspect of it and that every joke was a joke that I could really stand by and felt like was doing <laughs> the right work and climate change is definitely the other one where the amount of effort I've put in to trying to make it <laughs> funny and interesting and not flippant I'm not sure is rewarded in the comedy that has been produced at the other this end is it. it's, it's hard it's much easier to kind of denigrate it in a sense but uh, yeah look going into it I mean I didn't go into it with the intention of making comedy at all like so there's you know I don't know there's occasional lighter moment but I think we went into I went into it kind of really about just I wanted to do this show because post-war and waste we saw a lot of response to that. But there was also an interesting thing where I was seeing where, you know, so, for instance, the federal government, Scott Morrison, ironically, you know, started to respond quite well to some of the waste stuff and started to, you know, have quite good plastics response. And, you know, it's still a lot, long way to go. But what you'd also then see is you'd see Scott Morrison going over to the United Nations, supposedly a climate forum, and he'd be talking about plastic waste. You'd also see kind of polling coming back asking Australians, you know, what are you doing to prevent climate change or respond to climate change? And you'd have them saying, oh, I don't get a plastic bag when I go to Coles or Woolies. And you realise that there's, a, there's, you know, they're actually two different issues. And before doing another war on waste, I was like, you really got to kind of, I wanted to kind of, engage with the climate thing to get hopefully increased understanding of that and in terms of what i wanted to do in this show like was this huge amount of stuff and we kind of really narrowed it down because after you talk to people who aren't you know in the climate industry and all that kind of stuff if you talk to people you know people on the street you realize that the general understanding of climate change can get fuzzy very soon because it's a confusing bloody thing you know waste is very easy you can see it you, you take your bins out once a week it's a really you know visceral thing and you know you can you can show in a straw and a turtle's nose or something but climate change is much harder to understand what it is that we do and what we can change it so that was kind of what it was intending to do and it was, it's hopefully gonna <laughs> just increase understanding a little bit but it's it bloody it was hard to do actually. It was a really hard show to do. Well, one of the things, firstly, to talk about is the idea of personal responsibility and how effective personal responsibility actually is. Because War on Waste certainly had some real influence, I think, in personal responsibility. You saw the upkeep, uh, upkeep of uptake of keep cups. Sorry, <laughs> um, you know, so, suddenly if you were in line at a cafe and you didn't have a keep cup, you were seen as a bit of a social leper. Of course, <laughs> you know, the great pandemic we've gone through again. I know, you can't take your keep cup to a cafe anymore because <laughs> you'll probably get COVID from the barista. So we're back to, we're back to destroying the environment for a while so I that know. we can survive this pandemic we're going through. But there will, there will be some who argue that no amount of personal change, that personal change is actually a con by big business to say that our that it is up to us and that somehow we have 
the capability yeah. on a personal level to affect what's going on in the world. Whereas the argument would be that until the bigger businesses, the old energy companies and those vested interests change what they are doing, it doesn't matter how many times you take your keep cup to the yeah, cafe. absolutely. And look, it was interesting in Warren Waste. We would, you know, we would show the things you could do, but we were also very wary of showing where it wasn't your fault. Like, you know, you kind of, when you go, look, you're told to recycle this, but the reality is that the international market for recycling this type of plastic doesn't exist. So that's got to be the government's got to come in and fix that problem. Similarly with this, uh, like, you know, it's funny because in this in the fight for planet A, it shows we do show some of the things you can do yourself to try and affect your own carbon footprint. But it's I would I would no way I would have done this show if it was only that <clears throat> because it's that's a small part of it. It's an important part of it. And I'll tell you why. It's a, it, diff, it's, <clears throat> it has an importance for a couple of reasons. Absolutely. The biggest faults are our political system and and certain businesses. You know, a few core businesses are the main polluters when it comes to carbon. And they're affected in a large way by policy. You know, you're a political wonk. You're well and truly across that. The, what I found interesting about War on Waste, and this is not something that was any way planned, it was kind of looking back on what happened. I had a couple of politicians talk to me about the fact they say, we don't lead, we follow. So you saw a long, t- you know, initially with War and Waste, you saw people change their habits first off. And then you saw them start to hassle and go, well, how come we can't do more? Or I tried to change this thing, but there wasn't something there for me to change. Or I found out that it wasn't working. And that then started putting, they would call the councils and put pressure on them or contact the government and that kind of thing. And so you kind of got this bottom-up pressure that was happening there because people were engaging with it and actually trying to find solutions. And that's what then led to a slow, you know, probably like, couple of years afterwards you'd see a slow change in the policy stuff and this is not by the way i'm not in any way suggesting this is all because of war and waste there's like four corners documentaries there's enormous amount of work from the project was fantastic on this stuff and there's all these incredible groups that are pushing for change for years so it's not war and waste only it's only one of the one of the voices there but you did start to see these changes and you go okay that's interesting so it's not that you taking it's not just that you save a coffee cup by taking your, your reusable cup it's that you start kind of making other people engage with it and then it becomes a larger group now i think that in australia particularly given the the, the fucking nightmare we've gone down of climate change policy in australia that was kind of you know we were late 2000s coming up to kevin rudd and that you know even howard was announcing we were going to have certain you know trading you know trading systems for carbon you had this feeling of going somewhere and then it got caught in that kind of change of leadership battle and the tony abbott's great you know attacks on it really and it's lost a lot of momentum and to have that momentum again it really needs people to be part of that and so part of engaging with your own carbon footprint is actually about firstly just learning what creates the problem and secondly then being able to go hang on a second so i really would like to you know i would like to fix up my carbon footprint when i drive you know i've got to drive i'm not going to give up my car i'm not going to walk everywhere you know but can i have a car that reduces my carbon footprint then you go oh look it's really interesting you know there's no electric charges anywhere near me personally i've got no off-street parking i can't charge a car there's none around me you go well that needs government that needs action from councils or government to do something so you start once you engage with it, you kind of go, oh, I need to put more pressure on the government to do something. So that's it, it kind of looks at personal responsibility and you can actually, you know, I, I think that we can't say we have no role, but obviously we can't solve it ourselves. It's interesting that one of the things from the first episode, I've seen the first episode of the show, and 
one of the things that I really responded to. No, no spoilers, okay? To... No spoilers. You can't tell. Exactly. Them, you can't uh, tell them whether we solved guys, climate change in the first episode. <laughs> I've got anyway, guys. I've got a good feeling. Yeah. I've seen the first episode, and I've got a good feeling about where this is going. <laughs> Hope there's not an M Night Shyamalan style twist at the end. Yeah. And it turns out we're already dead, and we're living in a simulation. <laughs> and <laughs> this documentary brought to you by QAnon. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, here's what I found fascinating was that within each step, there's a range of solutions. So you might be talking to somebody about their electricity bill, but you run them through the idea of here's how you could change, say, the lights in your house. You know, here's what you could turn off. Here's what you could replace. But also here's how your particular energy company probably has, a, you know, something that you can subscribe to. You can change over mm. the you know, your your energy bill and put pressure back on the company themselves to deliver you cleaner energy. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the whole point as well, because there's a mix of families, you know, there's families that have got a bit of money and there's kind of students who are, you know, in a share house in Wollongong, that kind of thing. So <clears throat> we wanted to get a range of different, because yeah, what, what fascinated me about the process, because we had no idea what people's end result would be. Like it was, a, it was a literal experiment of three episodes. And at the end, we kind of added up what changes there'd been. Um, <clears throat> What fascinated me was seeing how different households could do different things. For some, you know, they'd hit a wall on energy or whatever, but were really amazing when it came to food or vice versa. And how different families came up with different ways of dealing with it. And that's that was the whole point, is that we're not giving one solution and we're not saying everyone has to do the one thing because, you know, you will put in your own life, you'll find different things that you can change that are easier and harder. And I've found that personally and people we dealt with found that that's how it is. So you can't just give one solution. I think the <clears throat> episode three was the hardest one to deal with, which was food. Because are you vegetarian? Well, I'm a vegetarian, <clears throat> yes, but not a vegan. No, no, so, no that's all right. But vegetarian is fine. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so, well, not where I live, mate. When I live, it is uh, right. officially called not enough. That's <laughs> yeah. what a vegetarian is. And even vegans, if they're eating stuff they pick themselves and it hasn't naturally fallen from the trees onto the ground already, then they're monsters as so, well. Hang, yeah, you're, you, you've, that's right. You've moved to the, uh, the, the Byron area, haven't you? So you're, you're, you're a vaccinated vegetarian. You might as well be Hitler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the, the thing is, I don't mind that they don't vaccinate up here because, you know, like I've... I'm not going to get polio at my age and I don't have any kids. So it's a low <laughs> risk factor for me. But it's very interesting to be in somewhere during COVID awareness where, you know, you see everyone in Melbourne having to wear a mask and you're like, I'd just like a rule in Mullumbimby where they bring in, you have to wear shoes to the supermarket. That would be fine with me. <laughs> yeah, you shut your tyrant. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah. But this is the thing is that so, so the obvious thing to do is just to say, you know, if you want to reduce the carbon footprint of your food. I mean, firstly, people said to us, don't cover food because people fucking hate it if they if you tell them what to eat. They hate it. Mm -hmm. They will turn off immediately. And we, we were thinking about it. We actually, when we looked at the kind of carbon footprint of a household, we went, look, reality is it's a, quite a big part of it. So we're just going to address it. We're going to take it from, we're not just going to tell everyone to become vegans and vegetarians. We'll show that's obviously the best approach. But we'll also say, oh, look, some meats are massively reduced carbon footprint to beef and lamb. You know, are there other alternatives there? So it's just about looking at a, at a whole bunch of alternatives. And what people choose to do is 
up to them. It's, you know, different people will be really full on about it, others won't be. And, you know, I found that with War and Waste, man. You met some incredible people who went, like, full zero waste. Incredible. They'd, like, they'd carry around all of the waste they'd thrown around, you know, like a, a jam jar for the year. It was incredible. But then you, you get other people who just made a few little changes. And you've got to cater to all of those things, I think. It's interesting to ask because, I mean, I think partly because of the, the pandemic, we're in this time where shopping locally is just a much easier and better thing to do. Mm. And in the area I live, you know, we're really doing outdoor market shopping, you know, growing some of our own vegetables. Like, you know, a lot of the compost goes straight back into the mm. garden. But also, like, in that really effective way, our bins are only collected fortnightly. So yeah. one week it's your yellow recycling bin and one week it's your red kind of general rubbish mm. bin. And that's 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 it, all I have. All the kind of plant matter goes back straight into the garden or yeah. into the compost. And then that idea of knowing that you've got a bin for two weeks just really makes you super conscious of the way that you use, yeah. you know, plastics and recycling, but also just general bin stuff. You start being at the supermarket going, I am not going to buy something that has huge packaging because yeah. I know that I'm not going to be able to you know, put it in the bin. So Absolutely. there is that sense of when you make those practical changes, it does just then make you actively think about it more. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. It's just about engaging with it and trying to find solutions. And and one of the, one of the things we always say is we always also show things that don't work as well. Like as in, you know, you, you try it and you hit a wall because that's part of the process. It's not a perfect solution. No one's 100% on this. I've been trying for years. I, I don't have a zero carbon footprint, but it certainly reduced it, you know. So it's you just got to try, got to keep going. I mean, I should do mine again because I did mine a few years ago and the problem was that, you know, all the flying that I would do, particularly internationally, really was ruining that carbon footprint of mine. But now that I've been grounded, exactly, I might might spin this as I've just really taken a positive step for my carbon footprint. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. But that's But we even look at, you know, in transport, we just look at offsetting flights. It's like such as you know it's obviously not the best approach but you if you're going to give the best solution in a in a bad approach you know we look into that kind of thing and it's amazing how many people don't even know it exists or don't even trust it at all so it's kind of looking at that kind of stuff it's yeah it's a as i said a nightmare of a show to make but uh, look it was fun at times why okay so firstly what what do you, what would you hope that at the end of it you know because we can go into a show particularly a show like this, you've got to have aims and aspirations of what people will take away from at the end. What were your aims and aspirations and how do you think, how effective do you think you will be in some of those aims and aspirations? <laughs> um, okay, let's let's separate those two questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> aims and aspirations, I, I think just, yeah, people having more understanding and being more engaged with, with, with Carbon Footprint. And that means obviously, and hopefully, one of the things I think, and this is to contrast with COVID, right? COVID is so frustrating at the moment because we have no real solution. I mean, we have some solutions, but we don't have a cure for it. The thing that frustrates me with climate change is in so many cases, we already have the cure. We know that we can use renewable energies here. We know we can change over to different approaches. In, we know we can, you know, meet's one of the harder ones, but there's some positive things on, on track there as well. So there's a lot of things that can actually solve it. It's just about committing to it. And the problem is that it's become a political football and it is affected, I think, in Australia by the closeness and the lobbying and the the donations between fossil fuel industry and government and that's what it's been caught up in and that's why so in in terms of getting change i hope it does lead to change i hope it leads to more engagement and more actual positive change in that front 
Whether it will happen, I'm much less certain about because unlike waste, there's not a massive vested interest that is pushing against it. And that makes a big difference. That makes a massive difference. It means that, you know, all those other times we've had some kind of, you know, positive kind of direction on climate change, we get held up somewhere. And it's really easy for that to happen again. So, yeah, I'm very aware of that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not claiming this. You know, I, this is really just one more voice in this, in this bloody ongoing crazy fight. It's crazy looking back at it because you go, we visited the Cape Grimm um, like laboratory in Tasmania where they've been counting. They've been, they've been monitoring CO2 emissions there since 1976, which was the year I was born. So even in 1976 when I was born, they were monitoring the CO2 because they already knew at that point that it was possibly warming the globe. Fucking, you know, I think of it as being this thing that was my kids, in my kids' generation is the problem. This is my whole fucking life we've known about this and we've done this very little. It's just crazy. That is something that terrifies me. And the other thing was when, and I was just, I remember right, being right in the middle of it when they were going for the super profits tax on the mining companies when we were making those incredible super profits in Australia. And it seemed like the most sensible bit of policy that has ever been suggested in Australian history, which is take from these, you know, companies that are making these like incredible, you know, super profits and use that money to, you know, help us transition into more renewable energy sectors and be leaders in those sectors. It wasn't even a plan to go, we have to shut this shit down and not have the same success. The plan was let's transition you know, into the next generation of success and be world leaders in this other generation. And then to see the mining companies just so effectively run ads and you know, disinformation programs and just shut it down so quickly and so cleanly yeah. just terrified me about oh, absolutely. what our chances are of having success. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. I'm Right now I'm working on a, a different documentary, which is about, <clears throat> I guess, democracy and lobbying and money and all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting how often that example comes up from people because it was such an example of where, you know, like it just, it, just in terms of the money we're spending on COVID right now, we would have, the government, federal government would have had hundreds of millions of dollars more if they brought in that, that super profits tax. And... We don't have it. We don't have that money because, you know, they spent a few million bucks or, you know, 10, 20 million bucks on ads to save hundreds of millions or no, billions, really. It's extraordinary. You know, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a, uh, yeah, a real worry. And that's why I guess I'm not, <laughs> I'm not getting my hopes up too high. Although I do think that there is a – I think things are changing positively now. I think the fact that, you know, if you look at it actually in terms of federal government now, one of the big changes that's happened is not to do necessarily with campaigning or anything like that. It's to do with the fact that the economics of renewable energies have changed. So if you look at your kind of AUMO studies, it shows that by far the cheapest option is renewable now. So I love the fact you've gone from the situation of kind of <clears throat> all of the kind of anti-climate people all the people who don't believe in climate change kind of saying you know we can't have renewable energy it's just too subsidized to now saying we really need to subsidize a new coal-fired gas you know coal-fired power station it's like really i thought you were a couple of years ago you were quite anti-subsidizing something weren't you and it's now like no 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 we need it uh, do you think those people genuinely don't believe in climate change that's an interesting question <laughs> yeah god it's interesting do you think that people's motivations are pure in that they just genuinely don't believe that it's a thing and they think it is some sort of great con and they think that everybody else needs to wake up and they're the sensible people in the room? Or do you think that it is 
vested interests telling themselves that story so that they can continue to do what they've been doing previously? I think there's a mix. I think there's a mix. So I did look in quite a bit into the kind of psychology of climate change denial before doing this show and didn't really end up dealing with it for the very reason that I didn't want to really talk about climate change denial. It's like, you know, at max you're talking about 10% of the population maybe that thinks it, and they're clearly wrong. So why bother spending... Why bother waste broadcast time trying to deal with that? Um, But when you look at that psychology of it... I think there are a lot that do actually believe it. And it's similar to anti-vaxxing in a way. I mean, it's that thing of going... So a lot of the information that's been put out there that is climate change denial has been put out there over the years through, you know, funding from Coke Industries or Exxon in the, in the 80s and that kind of stuff. And it's all out there and it's really, you know, it's well-done stuff by high-end public relations firms, right? So it's that whole thing of going, if you're a certain, if you have a certain personality type and you go and, you know, you search your own truth on the internet, you're going to go down different avenues. Like we're all like that, you know, so you get some people that end up being like, they have a certain perception about natural things, so they end up becoming anti-vaxxers. If you have a certain perspective on freedom and government regulation and that kind of stuff, you might find yourself down a wormhole, a rabbit hole, where you've, you feel like you've uncovered the truth and it looks like, oh, I've got the truth and everyone else doesn't know it. And that's what's happened with climate change deniers. So there are definitely people out there who are climate change deniers who absolutely believe it and don't don't realise kind of the forces that have gone on to put them there. And they think we're all, we're sheeple, you know, come on, wake up. I think there are others who probably come to that a little bit more out of a, it'd be good for me if I believed this kind of thing, you know. <clears throat> if you're, you know, if you're, you maybe get some, you maybe good mates with Gina Reinhardt or something like that, <laughs> you know. So you do a show like this, you've got to be aware that if you're going to talk about this and go up against those sort of powerful vested interests that like to, you know, do their work behind the scenes, <laughs> you know, rather than necessarily in front of the camera, that that same level of attention might be paid to you. Was that something that you were aware of going into this show that you might be painting just a massive target on yourself? You know for sure yeah. that when a show like this runs on the ABC that at least, you know, your Andrew Bolt blogs and those sort of things are going to write about it. That's your tick, yeah. tick, tick, you're given. But is there a chance that you have to entertain the idea that Andrew Forrest has hired somebody to go through your garbage? Uh, look, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I am, oh, fuck, I'm not looking forward to that part of it. And I was, yeah, definitely. I was thinking about this a lot when I was doing it, going, ah, oh, fuck, this is going to be such a nightmare when this show goes to wear. <laughs> um, <laughs> and look, I, I think the, the fortunate thing is, I, thankfully through the years of doing The Chaser and, you know, going through some of the various scandals and that, I've got a pretty thick hide now. And I, I'm old. I don't give much of a fuck what's said about me, really, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've, I'm kind of, yeah, unless it's... Yeah, look, I'm, I'll be fascinated by the Chris Kennys and that kind of see what they write about it. But it, my, my actual main concern is really about the ABC not being kind of <clears throat> denigrated because of what it's done. That's that's I'm often more defensive about the ABC than I am about myself in this perspective because I hate seeing the attacks that are put on the ABC and I hate seeing that kind of culture war happen. And I think that culture war is terribly 
bad for the ABC and bad for kind of media in, in general. So, yeah, I hope that we've... I hope it's kind of moved forward enough now that it's not... You know, that it's a few columnists rather than being the kind of... You know, whole kitten gaboodle attacking, but we'll see. Uh, you talk about that idea of getting to an age where you don't give a fuck, but the very, <laughs> you know, well, don't give a fuck about that sort of criticism, <laughs> but the very nature of signing on to a project like this also means that you give a fuck about something. Like, you don't do a show like this with your time if there aren't things that you do genuinely give a fuck about. So if you don't give a fuck about what these people are going to say, what is it that's so important to you that means that you're willing to put yourself in that firing line? Well, well, that was exactly it. I just thought, you know, like, it's really... I feel very guilty at a generational level. I feel like, you know, we are really kicking the can down the road. We're handing over a problem to the next generation. I've got three kids, you know. It's probably increased my carbon footprint anyway, but I've got three kids and... I look at what we're kind of handing over to them and think, yeah, shit, we're just not doing enough. We're not doing enough. And I feel guilty about that and just think we should do all that we can to at least get some momentum. Now, the the terrible thing about climate change is, and it's really, really, really hard to deal with this because it kind of, it goes contrary to the kind of way human psychology works. You know, we, we, we're built to kind of respond to threats that are directly in front of us, you know, the, the, the lion that's roaring at us, rather than, you know, our superannuation and being destitute in 50 years, you know. And climate change, because the actions now lead to a consequence later on, is really hard to get people motivated by, you know. And because it's slow, it's a slow change. So you can, you know, it's the old frog in the pot, although I have discovered that apparently frogs if put in a pot and boiled will actually fucking just hop out apparently that's one of the most famous you know things that's constantly used is apparently untrue (laughs) apparently scientifically that's wrong but anyway a lot of frogs have been very pissed off for years going mate i'm not a fucking idiot yeah, I'm exactly. by that. I'm jumping out as soon yeah, as it gets hot. Yeah. You fucking. I haven't experimented with it. Actually, I should have done it. I, I was filming in the middle of like in really far out Queensland the other day, and I, I opened the toilet, and there were two green tree frogs just sitting in the dunny, just staring up at me. So I just pissed in the trees outside. But I, I should have at the time thought, now's the moment I can really test this experiment. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but no, but I just say yeah. So in terms of climate change, it is that to use the the incorrect analogy, the frog in the pot. It's that slow change. So things that we do now are really gonna fuck up your kids or the next generation twenty, thirty years time. So yeah, that's that's one of the problems, and that's I guess why I feel like we've got to do as much as we can now about it. I say so, so. That gets to the idea of what is our responsibility as human beings, which is a bit of a deeper question, but. Mm. I think it's something that is being pondered a lot at the moment when all the institutions that we have come to rely on, you know, in the various forms of our lives have been often shut down. I mean, some of them have been more important than ever, you know, like uh, public hospitals and access to medicine and, you know, genuine, you know, frontline workers and being able to get a test that's not going to cost you three months months of your wages and all these sort of things that we have Mm. as Australians. Those institutions have been very important and I could probably argue to a certain extent government in a general sense has probably done a pretty good job when you look at it on a world scale. Our state leaders didn't hate each other so much yeah. that they didn't get together and have a national cabinet. You know, there was some sort of accountability that the person in charge actually thought that it was their problem. You know, to varying yeah. degrees and people can have arguments about that. But some of those institutions 
have been okay. And then some institutions have just completely failed and been revealed for how ridiculous they were in the first place. It's made us think, I think, a little bit more about what's important in life. What does it mean to be a human being? What are we actually in this for? What is the point of all this? Are they questions that you yourself ponder? And uh, if so, are they, you know, then reflected in this style of work that you're making now? Yeah, look, I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think it was, I think it might have been, Gillard on your podcast actually who said you know COVID-19 has shown people that thought government didn't matter that in actual fact it really bloody well does matter and I've always been of the opinion that government matters I've always been really interested in kind of what government does and how it affects your life and you know getting better policy and it's always shat me that you know when it doesn't happen and so yeah I think that's right those institutions are always really important and I've always kind of had a really institutional view of the world you know you don't really people behave differently based on what institution they're in and that's why i kind of don't see people necessarily being evil sometimes you kind of go you know anybody in that situation is going to act a different way Um, but in terms of personal responsibility i'm not sure actually I'm, i'm a bit kind of I think we all have a personal responsibility to try and do our best in a situation, you know. I think that's what we've, we've got to try and do. And in terms of the institutions that have become so important now, I guess, yeah, we've kind of narrowed down. It's like our family's become the main one because we've been trapped in a house with them for months on end, yelling at each other about the Wi-Fi. Uh, you know, it's an important institution. <laughs> Turns out the fucking NBN is an important institution as well <laughs> when you have coronavirus. Um, but, yeah, but those other things, that society, I guess, you know, you know and those interactions and neighbours and helping out neighbours and then also realising that, you know, your community doing the right thing affects all of us is something we've also focused on through coronavirus. So <clears throat> I think in some senses... While it has distracted attention from climate change, there's been some interesting lessons through coronavirus about, you know, hey, if we respond quickly to a scientific problem and we do the right thing and we listen to the experts and we work together and look, oh, there is some individual responsibility in this. You can't just go out to a party constantly, you know. Oh, and when all of these things come together, fuck, we can actually have quite a good result. That's exactly the same as fucking climate change. That's what we need. We need all levels working together and responding to experts and doing the right thing. So yeah, It's definitely I, put people more in touch with their communities, which I do believe, if I believe in anything, is going to be the only solution to these problems because they have to start, as you said, on a community level because then the community can have power to influence other communities. But mm. it, it, it does feel like you know the only way that you can achieve most things is by starting locally you know in these and i think the pandemic has certainly you know uh shown us that about our personalities what have been the things during this you know completely unprecedented time uh i'm the first person to have used that expression so i continue to use it and i think i might have just dropped out for a second so i'm just gonna have a long (laughs) that's what i tend to do Yes, that's yeah. <laughs> I tend to if I if the question seems to be really long, it's normally because I think I've dropped out for a second from the expression on the other person's face, <laughs> and so I just keep asking the question until we get to the end. And you're yeah, back. yeah. So this until question is still again. really going. Uh, okay, so I guess uh, what what good things have come out of what we're going through, and what do you think are probably the things we should be worried about that have come out of what we're going through right now? 
Yeah, so I think one of the good things, well, personally, I think one of the good things, and I know others have said this, is just I've really enjoyed spending more time with family. Like, you know, I think like you, often in my work, I have to travel quite a bit and actually kind of being locked down with a family for a while was really nice. And that was the that was the nice part of it. I'm not saying that there were there were no arguments with basically five people in the house all either doing school, university, or work and Zoom at the same time. And we're literally within the area. We we only got the NBN in our area about halfway through coronavirus. We were on fucking ADSL, baby. That was tense. <laughs> the fact there are still five of us at the end of that process is amazing but it was it was really good just to kind of spend more time at home and not have to go somewhere else so that was actually quite nice and i think that's i think others have seen that you know kind of i i that said you know i i don't think we we, we nailed it we kind of started really well like you know those first few weeks of covid we were like let's go out and do our exercises and be good about this and we're all exercising together and that and then by the end, it's just like, ah, fuck, everyone's in their own room doing, you know, just getting on the cans. Not not, not the kids, but, uh, you know, it was, you know, I'm not saying we really nailed the coronavirus, but no, no, there was some great, that was one of the positive aspects that came from it. I think one of the negative aspects that's come from it, and I guess this was there already, but you just see it more, is that that kind of, um, that distrust of authority. Now, distrust of authority is a good thing to a point. But, you know, watching America and that kind of anti-mask movement, all that kind of stuff, but then seeing it kind of dribble into Australia and see it kind of become part of Australia and see these, you know, people refusing to wear masks and people, you know, holding up their cameras in Bunnings and filming people and, you know, about the fucking Magna Carta or something. The Magna Carta says I don't have to wear a mask, really? <laughs> I mean, that's slightly concerning. Um, and and also, the, 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 there is another concern. In the <laughs> you guys must watch that and just go, this was basically just what we were doing. You're doing it seriously. Yeah. This is what we did for years. This yeah, was our show. True. Like rocking up to joints and filming people saying ridiculous things, saying we can go in here because of the Magna Carta. And now that's just what people are doing for reals. Great, great. Thanks for drawing that analogy, Will. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, shit. Oh, God. We were the first Karens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh god anyway i've totally lost my train of thought after that now you... right, well uh, so i want to talk to you about what you were saying personally about the idea that you started well in the exercise and all those sort of sense and I, look this is the reason that i bring this up is partly it's been my experience as well which is at the start i think i had a real good attitude to i, I had moved to a new place it was the first time i hadn't done a show in 25 years at the comedy mm. festival there was a bunch of reasons that i decided that this was an okay thing, you know, time yeah. to settle in in the new house. Amy and I would not have spent, you know, this long together, just mm. her and I in the 19 years that we have known each other. Like I, I would have always been getting on a plane or going somewhere to work or being away. And all those things like have just been brilliant. I've loved every aspect of all those things, but gee, the health thing went out the window really quickly. <laughs> that was the one where like, partly because you're cooking at home and you're trying to fill in your days, so you're suddenly just making more elaborate meals or, you know, more cakes to eat after dinner or that sort of aspect of it. But also just that genuine idea of, like the other night we were watching a TV show, like we were drinking wine and watching a TV show that we were not enjoying. 
but we watch all 13 <laughs> episodes of it because you know we, it, we our level of not enjoying the tv series was outweighed by the fact that we then have to go and search for another tv series so we're like yeah. fuck it we're going to stick with yeah. this and suddenly it's two o'clock in the morning you're still drinking wine watching a tv series that you don't like and you're just going well but what have we got to get up for in the morning yeah. <laughs> like, what, so, what else is know? there no exactly it was really it was interesting the, the particularly alcohol and that you know um ABC was doing that at home alone together and I was asked to do something for the first episode and the kind of gag was, you know, how, how to deal with your recycling and that. And I was like, oh, all the bins will just be filled with booze. Now, I had been, this is quite, you know, maybe a month or two into into coronavirus and I'd been keeping all my booze bottles for, you know, 10 cent recycling. I'm a good recycler. And uh, I, I was like, they're like, we'll bring stuff over. I'm like... What do you mean? Filling three bins up with booze bottles? I reckon I've got that covered. <laughs> I reckon I can do that. <laughs> Props doesn't have to even step in on this one. <laughs> I, can, I can already cover that. So it was, yeah, I think there was a period there where alcohol became a bit of an issue. It just, you know, as you say, what else? Well, no. Days over. What are we going to do? But it, 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 it's, I'm working at the moment with Christian Van Vuren from the Bondi Hipsters who it's fascinating because he, 10 years ago, he got this um, really bad tuberculosis and he was in isolation in the hospital for like months on end. And he, he, during this period, a lot of people were kind of talking to him about it because he's a bit of an expert in what happens when you're in isolation. And the thing that he said is that is to not have an expectation of when it's going to end is a big part of it because that's when you get depressed if you're like in two months this is going to be over and then you get to two months and it's not over and that becomes really... So it's just like he would not try not to have a, any expectation of the end of it. And I think right now seeing this kind of second wave in Victoria, that's another... that You know, that's the mindset you kind of have to get into is just like, oh, fuck, this is ongoing, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I, I had shows and some of them are still on sale for the end of the year because there's a couple of states <laughs> that, you know, still have pretty... Because... <laughs> you know, that well, they just have... You know, they have laws where, you know, there's a chance that they would let me do that show, but I can't see mm. that I can do any of those shows, particularly because I have other commitments would mean I'd have to cross borders and be safe for other people. And I just can't see that we're going to be in an environment where I can do any of them. And there was part yeah. of that, there was actually a relief when I came to that. Like, even though it's, I suddenly realized, oh, maybe they won't do the comedy festival next year. And I've got to be open mm. to the idea that this might be, a year before I do another show or it might be 18 months before I do another show or at least another show in the way that I imagine what shows are. Well, I mean, we were working towards a few months ago, like a couple, I guess like six weeks ago, if you'd asked us, we're doing Gruen in October and if mm. you'd asked us whether we would have an audience, we would have assumed that we probably would have had an audience for that show. Maybe mm. not the traditional audience, but we would have had an audience going into that series and now we're planning for the idea that we will do the entire series without an audience because we just can't see that that's a thing that could possibly yeah. happen. So resigning yourself to the fact that we might only be four months into the next 18 months is a challenge in itself to, you know, to oh. understand how we're going to get through this. And people it's are reacting to it in so many different ways. And I find it very hard to be judgmental of most of them because I do think this is an incredibly challenging time and people must be reacting to it in incredibly different ways. Uh, can I ask about the kids? Like, I, I don't know how comfortable you are talking about that. And please, if you don't want to, that's absolutely fine as that's well. It. But how old are your kids? Uh, 18, 16 and 13. So can we start with 18? Because to mm. me, I, I feel so much sympathy for that 
age, particularly at the moment, because at that age, you're meant to be starting your own life. You know, this is the time where, you know, you can drive and you can drink and you can go off to live out of home and get a job or go to university or go traveling. And so many of those things don't exist at the moment, you know, whether it be a job, whether it be university, whether it be the capacity to, you know, pack your backpack and go overseas on a gap year. None of those things, even just that general thing of going and hanging out with, you know, 20, 30, 50 of your mates at some random party is something that has been completely taken off the agenda. So how does an 18 year old deal with what we're going through right now? Yeah, it's really hard. I think it's been really hard. And he started kind of uni and then, you know, uni was suddenly it's online it's zoom lectures you know which is let's face it the worst part of university firstly lectures done badly it's the worst part done in the worst way it doesn't have any of the positive parts of it which is you know meeting up after the lecture and going to the pub or something like that so yeah it's just the worst start for university and he uh, he also kind of his job stopped for quite a while. So, yeah, it was a really struggle, actually, and you couldn't go out, you couldn't have the socialising. It, it was a real struggle, absolutely. And I, uh, it's interesting, I know a lot of his mates as well had chosen to do gap years and had these incredible plans. They were working their asses off, saving money, and then they were going to go travel and all this kind of stuff. All gone, <laughs> all gone. And so, yeah, the, the kind of that age group, I know a lot of kids of that age group and, it's been a real challenge for them and I think a lot of stress on those those guys and girls about this for, to get through coronavirus. Yeah. It's just the worst stage of the year. It's, it's interesting you talking about, you know, you accepting that you might not be doing stand-up for comedy for a year or so. Now, you know, at your stage of your career, that's not the end of the world. But, you know, 20-year-old Will Anderson starting out, Fuck, how imagine imagine the impact of that then. That's where you kind of go. And so there's kind of early stand-up comedians now. You go, well, how the hell do they get around this? What do they do? I, I, I just can't, can't comprehend the kind of disruption this causes. Well, so that's a really good point because there are a bunch of smaller comedy rooms that have reopened, you know, Giant Dwarf being one of them, uh, with, you know, limited seating, with, you know, COVID acceptable, you know, socially distanced, you know, playing to an audience of, you know, 50 instead of 200, 15 instead of 60, mm-hmm. you know. And I couldn't be more supportive of that because that is for, for those people at those stages of their life and their career where the idea of getting up on stage and at least fine-tuning your craft while all this is going on, you know, there would be some people who would have been looking at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, the Sydney Comedy Festival as the place to launch the next stage of their career, to go from mm. being, you know, a good stand-up to a great stand-up or a great stand-up to a TV or radio person or any of those opportunities that those festivals you know, provide for people. I've had all those things. To be honest, if I never get to do anything else again, I could look back on what I have got to do and I couldn't feel resentful that I didn't get to try anything. I didn't, you know, there was, there's still things that I want to do, plenty of them, and I hope I get the opportunity to do it. But if I was told you couldn't do any of this ever again, I'd be able to go, well, at least I got to do it. Whereas for people at that stage of the career, they're still in the process yeah. of getting to do it and so there was some resentment from some in the comedy community that no room should be open you know but i think there's a real difference between me saying hey come out to this thing and i want a thousand of you or two thousand of you to come out and sit in a room together and i'm going to try to get you know you to expel fluids out of your mouth for as long as i possibly can it doesn't really seem like (laughs) that's a socially responsible thing to do whereas 
I think that there is a different role for those smaller rooms, you know, those smaller cafes to be open, the restaurants to remodel in a way that can still keep those businesses yeah. and part of society going and operating in a, in a safe way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah, but God, it's hard though. It's hard when, you, you know, I think I heard you talking to McAuliffe about this actually, just, you know, watching those shows that rely on an audience or a career that relies on an audience. And, you know, I know people that are musicians as well. You just kind of go, that whole, their whole career has got this cloud hanging over at the moment as to whether or not it's going to be able to start up again. And, you know, this, there are some things obviously we've transitioned and figured out how to do it. And I guess some TV shows you can do that and you can kind of not have the audience there. But there's still a large part of the kind of arts community that relies on getting people together and having that, that you know, audience and what the hell do you do if you can't do that it's just extraordinary and so what were the other ages 15 and uh, 16 and 13 16 and 13 so you're seeing a fair bit of the education system at the moment i imagine i am interested in your observations of um the australian education system like what 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 sort of job was it doing before what we're going through and what sort of job has it done reacting to you know pivoting on the spot and having to offer a different experience. I'm just going to keep talking because I think I froze. Yeah, you froze, but I think I got it. I think I got it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and all of my kids, all of my kids went to different schools too, so it's interesting to see different responses. And I was amazed at how quickly teachers were able to kind of transition and, you know, suddenly be doing lessons over Zoom. And I think it's amazing that they did that. Um, You became really aware of that kind of inequality though, and that's why, you know, that, the kids that didn't have Wi-Fi or computers or whatever, God, such a divide and suddenly that was massively increased because that's all you needed for school. So, yeah, look, I was, I was, I was, I was pretty impressed with my kids' schools at how they adapted to it. And it's interesting though, my kids initially weren't too bad, we were kind of into it. And then as time drew, drew on, they kind of started one in particular started getting quite, oh, I'm just really over this. You couldn't handle the kind of learning online, you know, particularly those who like, you know, their favourite subject is drama or something and it relies on being there and interacting with somebody and suddenly you have none of that. It just became like, oh, this is such a drag. So, you know, they did a good job with schools, but it was a, there's a limit to what you could actually do with that. And I, it, I think there was something on Q&A the other day I asked this question. I thought it was a great question going, you know, all of the teachers kind of basically readapted their way of teaching within a you know few weeks or a month. How come the federal government hasn't yet figured out a way to run the parliament without actually being in the same room? Like it's extraordinary how quickly they adapted. I think it's extraordinary to me also that the parliament hasn't adapted. Uh, I did speak to Julia Gillard about this idea, which was it felt to me like the perfect time to reimagine how it is that we have a federal parliament and to reimagine it in a way that meant that those parliamentarians could spend more time, you know, in their own communities, looking after their communities, responding to the issues in their own communities and then taking them to the national forum, which again is that idea of starting in the community and representing mm. the community on a national stage and coming up with something for the entire country. And I suggested perhaps maybe naively that I thought that that might also reimagine it in a way that would be more inclusive for female parliamentarians mm. who've, you know, traditionally, you know, had to, you know, stay at home more, haven't been able to, you know, spend as much time away. 
Um, why haven't we reimagined the parliament and how would you reimagine the parliament if you had like a magic wand? It's interesting you say about people staying in their communities more because in actual fact I think that they I think it's good that they come to Canberra and actually are open to being kind of all quizzed at once and having the media there. One of the things that frustrates me about federal parliament, one of the things I would change if I could uh, right now, if you go down to Parliament, you know, we, we used to do a thing of standing on the doors. The chaser would often go down, go to doors, which is basically the doors on the Senate or the House of Reps side. It's where the politicians would come out. Either they'd come in in the morning that way or they'd come out from the building and kind of say their two cents and the kind of media would be there. But if you go there nowadays, most of the parliamentarians avoid that totally. They just go get in the car, they go underneath the building, they go straight up into their office and they avoid that. And I, my thing is I reckon that, that you should have to, as a politician, you should have to walk the gauntlet of the media. Even if you walk through and you don't say a word, you should have, be, have to go in and out of that building by going past the media so that somebody can yell a question at you even if you're not going to engage with it. Um, so that's one of the things I would change. So I actually think there's a, there's a utility in them coming together at Parliament. Um, it's obviously very important that they're back in their communities as well, but... I almost wouldn't want them to always be there because you kind of you need to have them you need to have that kind of media being able to question them and seeing them, how they interact together and seeing that you know the deal making being done. Uh, but yeah, in terms of actually, how does the media go? <laughs> how does the media go in terms of keeping our politicians accountable? What's your uh, you know? I mean, I'm interested. Mm. You you're an observer of the media, and you've sometimes be, been part of yeah. that media. You know, asking those questions. Maybe in a disruptive sense, but definitely still, you know, part of the narrative around, you know, how politics is and how it is played and, you know, how it is represented in the media. What's your general vibe on the job the media is doing? Look, I think there's some extremely good journalists who are doing a, <clears throat> a very good job. I think that the worst thing at the moment is the is the, the undermining of the resources for the media. So the fact that... <clears throat> Yeah, Facebook and Google are taking all the money and it's not being pumped back into journalism is a real concern for me because you need good... You need, you need to be able to have a journalist who's... You know, I think most of the journalists are brilliant but they don't have enough time and that's the real trouble. Like, I see, you know, you see journalists who are pumping out two articles a day and they're incredible that they can do that and they're really good with detail but you kind of also go, you need those journalists who are working on something for a month to really get to the core of it and ask those kind of questions. So, look, I, I think generally speaking, I'm, I'm not overly critical of the media and as a matter of fact, I've, it's, there's an interesting trend at the moment in social media. If you, kind of, if you go to Twitter, I guess Insiders is the classic one for this. Like, you know, there's this real... Well, I think I'd call it left wing probably. There's a kind of a left wing hate mob for insiders. It's like everything, you know, nothing can be done that's correct on that. It's, and I, I don't quite get that, to be honest. I think that what concerns me about that is that people are generally getting angry because the media is not merely reflecting their opinions. And that's not what journalism should do. If you get 
it's so that journalism is entirely reflecting your opinions, then you become, you get into these silos like we've seen happen through Facebook and other social media, and those silos are polarising the community. And that's one of the biggest concerns, I think, for democracy is this kind of polarisation that we're having. So people kind of screaming at, oh, how come you asked that question? How come you didn't say this? It, it's, uh, it's concerning me. It concerns me that how journalism is being attacked at the moment and what that suggests overall. Yeah, you talked about the idea earlier about institutionalism and the idea that Mm. once you're in an institution, you behave in a way that serves the institution more than you behave in a way that necessarily serves everybody Mm. else. And I think that that, that's what social media has definitely enabled us to be all servants of particular agendas and institutions and you know, be in that bubble where it does not matter what that person says, even if it is occasionally something sensible. We hate that person, therefore everything that person says should be disregarded. And I can be as guilty as that. There's certainly some commentators that... I don't need to research an issue and if I feel like they're on one side of it, I, I, I could just take a good guess that I'm probably on the other <laughs> side of it. But that is not a very healthy or smart or engaged way to be you know, actively consuming things. Uh, what are you like as a media consumer? Because this is something that I've you know, been challenged with over the years because I used to be very much a completist. But what a completist, and this is from my journalism mm. days, you know, there was this real thing installed in us at you know, university for journalism that we didn't have a lot of contact hours, but you had to come to those contact hours, even if it was like eight o'clock in the morning, having read, you know, basically the five major newspapers, Mm. you know, of the time, whatever that selection of newspapers might have been. But, But you could. You could just get up and read all the newspapers and you were across essentially the news that everybody was seeing from the different perspectives. But now we live in a world of infinite, infinite you know, information and you could, if you wanted to, you could sit there all day and read a thousand yeah, different yeah. takes on a thousand different issues. So how is your level of engagement in the information and how do you get good information like how do you seek out stuff that means that you are actually critically and you know properly informed yeah that's good i mean yeah you're right the the being a completionist is quite hard now so chaz is the classic example of this because chaz is a total like completionist you know like he he thinks he can't do planet america each week unless he's read all the things that have been written about american politics that week so he just spends literally 22 hours a day reading every blog that exists never sleeps you know, it's just ridiculous. He's like, Chaz, you can't. And he's, you know, he's had to put in place arbitrary things. You know, I'm only going to read these 10,000 blogs. They're the most important ones. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he, he used to try and download all of the music. <laughs> you know, like he said, the, the internet has uh, really challenged the completionists amongst us. Um, I'm, I, I am kind of, um, I do get a lot of news still through Twitter and I still read a bit of mainstream stuff, generally probably on my phone. I find that, but I do that kind of more just to keep up in a general sense. I I find that more of the stuff I'm doing nowadays is kind of deeper research, you know, kind of going, getting an issue, really getting interested and really going into it deeply. And probably that kind of my broader knowledge of what's going on is a bit less for that reason. You know, sometimes there'll be a few days where I'm, don't really see the the news or whatever and i'm like fuck i just don't even know what's happening at all so um yeah but i I try to keep up with that that, but it's probably yeah and then that's one of the reasons i try to a little bit on 
Twitter and that follow people from different perspectives as well <clears throat> to make sure I'm not getting caught in too much of a bubble. Well, I ask people on this podcast, uh, the, the general conceit of it is if you have any sort of life philosophy, you know, work, love, life, you know, it doesn't really matter what it's in regard to, but do you have any principles, you know, either completely deep or, you know, the sort of thing that you can put on a poster in your office to inspire you is like, you know, because I like them all. I will say that. Like, I like when, you know, I'm talking to Mark Colvin and he's explaining to me the actual history behind the Stoics. But I also used to have a little, you know, it was just like a heavy iron desk stop of some kind that had engraved in it, what would you achieve if you knew you could not fail? Right. Mm. That was like, and I used to love that because it would just always make me think, oh, that's right. You know, so often what holds me back when I'm imagining what like a project or an idea should be is the idea of, you know, what if this fails? Mm. You know, it's that's just a pissy thing that like I bought in, you know, some shop or someone gave me as a present from some shop. But I love that also. So it can be any of those things. But do you have any of those sort of guiding principles? Are you a philosophy person in that sense? I, look, look, I'm a kind of a philosophy person. I mean, I did study a lot of philosophy. I don't, I don't, I'm not kind of one of those people that has the... Um, the dolphin poster on the wall that motivates me. It's funny thinking back, actually, when I was a, like a kid at high school, I did have like little things like, I don't even know where I found them. Just there's like, you know, don't wait for your ship to come in, you know, swim out to it, that kind of shit. Although I'd never even thought about it until recently. It wasn't like, it wasn't like an actual guiding principle at all. I don't, I, I was trying to think about this because I think it's the hardest part of your show uh, is that question. I, I was thinking about, you know, obviously some of the philosophies are something like don't harm, don't do harm or something like that. And I was thinking, well, is that my perspective? And then I thought, oh, you could probably look back at certain parts of my, you know, career history where I do probably harm people or, you know, do piss people off and, you know, I don't take the don't harm approach. And that's probably because I'm more motivated by a kind of sense of justice generally. So, you know, I, I get kind of really passionate and I probably slightly aggressive about it in some cases, you know. If you, if you see deep unfairness, that really riles me and kind of makes me, it motivates me to try and do something. So that's probably that kind of sense of fairness. I think coming from my mum's a social worker, coming from that kind of background, that's where that probably comes from. Um, but I don't really have a kind of guiding philosophy uh, um, as far as I know. Were you raised knowing much about, so I'm interested in two parts mm. of... Uh, your cultural understanding. So one of the things that I am obsessed with at the moment is this idea of the reconciliation of the deep and horrible injustices that have been done to the first people of Australia. And I, again, the other night, it's so funny, I watched, uh, not funny at all, but I watched a uh, the final quarter, the Adam Goods mm, documentary it's again, and this is the one. There's two, uh, both fantastic. Yeah. I highly recommend both of them. But um, I'm a huge AFL fan. Uh, but I watched it originally. This one is just made up of clips of things that happened, and it tells the story through various media commentators and what they said, the way that the you know what happened, the actual footage of what happened and what Adam said, you know, versus how it was reported in the media. It's an incredible case study, not only on 
you know, the, the race issues and the cultural issues that we have in Australia. You know, often you hear that argument from people, well, it was 200 you know, plus years ago. I wasn't here. It wasn't me. What's my responsibility? I was like, yeah, but the Adam Goods thing was five years ago. <laughs> and there you are in the crowd booing Adam Goods. You know, yeah. like, uh, it, this is not, a, you know, an in the olden days problem. It's a, a problem that still manifests itself on so many different levels in our society at the moment. Um that documentary, though, I watched it originally because um, I was working with Eddie McGuire at the time, and he actually features, you know, that's in, right, yes, you know, the documentary in various different ways, like both positive and entirely negative. And so I was sent a tape just as a sort of preview and a heads up for, you know, what it is that I could talk about mm. or what it is that you know might be interesting to engage on or how we could engage around it on the show, and it's very interesting to watch it again out of that context not on a computer in an office thinking about you know what do we do with this on our show but to just sit on my couch and choose to sit down and watch it again and the the difference was manifest in how it affected me Mm. the first time I was really looking at it from a you know I, I was interested but I was really looking at it in a work context more than a, just a general society context. And I think the other thing was I had written a huge routine about that whole thing. And so I felt like I was across it. Mm. So when I was watching it, there wasn't that much new information stuff that I didn't already know about how it had all gone down. I was aware that, you know, it had been reported that Adam blamed the 13 year old girl, whereas he'd immediately said mm. that that was the last thing that he wanted and that she wasn't the problem. Like I knew that those things were true, but then to sit there on my couch and watch it, I, I was genuinely in tears at the end of it. Like, you know, mm. weird tears too. Just that when you realise your face is wet without realising that you've been crying sort of tears. It was so profoundly disappointing that this was something that happened in a game that I love, in a country that I has generally been pretty great to me and provided me with like a life that I have very little to complain about. But I think that the greatest challenge, you know, well, the equal greatest challenge with climate change that we face as Australians is reconciling in some meaningful way with the history of this country. So uh, that's a long-winded way of me asking you firstly, how much do you think uh, you you knew about Indigenous Australia when you were growing up? Were you raised in a household where that was something that you learned a lot about? How was the education system in telling you? Because I look back and I think that I feel extremely failed by the education system when I went through it because I, I still know a criminally low amount and mm. I've done some you know serious reading in the last few years when I realized how deficit my knowledge in that area was but I feel that we still it is you have to go out of your way to find out proper information on the real history of our country yeah I, th- I think that's true and it, it's it, uh, firstly well actually let me first start with the those two documentaries about Adam Goods are amazing and yeah, the, the final quarter was incredible because it's one of those things where all they did is put together what we'd seen, you know, it was already broadcast. You know, there's nothing new there. It was just by, by editing. It was a brilliant act of editing by Ian Darling and his team. Um, what was fascinating about that is you think, oh, hang on a second, why would I bother watching this? I already lived through it. I lived through it. I, I should know it. But then you, you go, oh, this is totally different and yet I lived through it. <clears throat> you know, if I don't really understand a situation that I lived through five years ago, how the fuck can I understand a situation that went on well before I was alive and I've, you know, done very little study on it? And I think you're right that I don't think that my understanding of Indigenous, indigenous issues is nearly enough. Um, I grew up in... We, we, we 
emigrated here from South Africa. So I guess I did grow up in a household that spoke about <laughs> race as being an issue. I mean, my parents left, so that's... So they, that was, that was going to be my second yeah, question. That, well, my so parents it, left. it was a question in two parts, but I, knowing your background, I, I was very interested, A, how you knew about our Indigenous story, but B, what you knew about the story of South Africa yeah. and why your parents had chosen to leave. Yeah, so my parents... Yeah, I, so probably growing up, I knew more about South Africa because my parents chose to leave because they didn't agree with the apartheid regime that was there and they didn't want their kids to grow up in a country that had that system they didn't want you know at the time there was compulsory military service in south africa and they didn't want us to have to go and you know fight in townships you know for a system that they didn't agree with so that's why we came to australia but i think you're right that the education system i don't feel like it taught me nearly enough about the indigenous situation in australia and i think we're still learning a lot more my wife works in uh aboriginal legal service so i get a little bit more of an insight into some of those issues and it's utterly appalling and the treatment of aboriginals in australia you know with all the black lives matter stuff happening you know it's it's not we're not a world away the difference is that it's a smaller part of our population so it's not seen as much the difference is not that they're not treated poorly it's terrible their treatment so yeah no i but i don't i don't i still feel like i have a lot to learn on that front as well actually and um and i also don't know it's interesting i don't know if i'm not sure i don't get a sense necessarily that my kids education now has been substantially different either so I, have we actually changed in the last, I don't know, how long is it since I went to school, 30 years or something? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's really a really interesting one. What's your personal feeling about it? Is it an issue that you, um, you know, think about? You know, is it something that, yeah, where do you think it ranks in the, you know, issues that are important in our country, the problems that we, you know, Mm. need to solve and i mean when i say need to solve i mean it, there is no solution there is just a way of us reconciling in a in a meaningful way and uh, how important is that issue to you how much it is mm. something that you think about uh i look i think it's i think it's one of the most important issues we need to deal with and i think again it's not you know in terms of the issues i've been i guess dealing with more environmental stuff so it's not an issue that i in any way consider myself an expert on so i, I won't give too much comment about what should happen um i do think things like a voice to parliament seems like a very good idea and the fact that you know you've got together this you know massive group of aboriginal people and asked them to come up with a solution to the problem and they've all agreed that that's the solution or at least the first step to the solution and then you just go nah doesn't we don't like that idea doesn't sound like the best way to solve the problem in long term so yeah i think that seems like a good start but um yeah the, the, is, if there was only is. a solution approach, is hard when there is a solution that has been agreed yeah. on. And you can yeah, go, exactly. here's how you actually start. <laughs> there is no If only there was a solution, we would do something. Literally, again, we all agreed. We put this thing together. This is it. Yeah. Oh, man. We wish we could do something. We honestly do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I guess you're going to have to start again and come up with a solution that we like. <laughs> 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 uh, okay, so what what things are so obviously the environment, obviously you know with your work on the war on waste and the new show as well, the fight for planet A, 
um, the environment is a priority. If you were talking about other things that you're passionate about and that you consider to be priorities, what are they? Um, yeah. Look, it comes back to that. I, I don't have a single thing. Like, it's that comes back to that kind of injustice question. Like, you know, if you, if you see some real issue of in, injustice towards a group in any area, that tends to get me engaged, you know, whether it be, you know, the, the poorest people in Australia and whether or not they're given enough to actually live above the poverty line, you know, the education of those kind of kids, you know, all of those kind of issues. I think it's just that in a, in a country like Australia, which is so, so wealthy and so developed, the fact that we still have, you know, the situation of our Indigenous population, the situation of a lot of people living in poverty, that kind of thing is just, you just go, surely we can do better than that. You know, surely you can. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting actually because I I've realised to myself very recently actually that I think I have a little bit of ADHD when it comes to issues. So I, I'm not a kind of I'm not the kind of person that can just be a campaigner on one issue for 50 years. I kind of love engaging with a new issue and finding out new things and getting to the bottom and getting across it. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, there's there's not just one thing. I'm, I'm like you know, who knows not what the, what the next one will be that uh, you know really gets me interested. So you famously were, and it, it, I was watching a, the a documentary about Monty Python uh, the other night, and uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. And it's it, it really reminded me of how much that you know Monty Python had played such an incredibly huge part in my development and sense of humor and just you know growing up listening to the life of brian on on record before we even heard it we knew every word of it you know it was so strange for us because back in those days the recorded album version was actually a different version to the what they say in the movie so like we we thought we knew this movie from back to front and then there's different bits in the movie and some bits from the audio recording out there it was (laughs) it was a real revelation but It also occurred to me that regardless of the levels of, you know, success that each of those individuals all went on to have in their own different ways, they were all so identified still with this one thing that had been so, you know, big in their lives. And the only thing that I can think of in Australia that is similar to that, I I think, you know, working dog to a certain degree when it was, you know, degeneration, maybe that late show thing, there was a bit of an aspect of, you knew them all from one place, but then you followed their individual careers doing different things. But I think more so than any of those, that brand chaser, maybe because of the brand, maybe because of the time and, and, and what people you know thought chaser came to mean was, I think each of you have off, gone off to do very different things, but you all still get you know associated with this thing that you all started doing together. Well, I just want to know what, what what's that like is that something that you think of fondly is that something that you resent i oh, even yeah. hesitated about bringing it up because i was like oh, it'd be nice for no, craig to get no, through no. a whole fucking interview without having to talk about the chaser but <laughs> i not at all i i love the history of the chaser and i you know i think in terms of the team i'm one of the ones that would more like you know i still try and put in the occasional stunt in my shows i loved <clears throat> i loved doing that and i loved what you know i just love the whole experience the fact that it was you know it started out as a newspaper while we're at kind of a university and somehow evolved into a television show that then went from kind of an obscure friday night show to 
you know, raiding over $2 million and being involved in, you know, publicity wars with current affair and today tonight I, I i really loved it so i have no i still it's funny you know generally speaking i'm still more likely to be recognized on the street as the chaser guy than anything else i'm occasionally called the bin guy aren't you that hey aren't you that bin guy uh but to know <laughs> it's like yeah i'll be back on thursday mate uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, no, I I don't mind at all, really. Like, shit, I it was a lot of fun, and it, yeah, it's amazing. I still get people come out to me and go, oh, "I love that thing you did," and they tell it to you, and you go, "Fuck, I had totally forgotten that. I didn't even, you know, I, I, you might have even seen something I did, and you still forget it. Like, so it's great. I don't mind that at all. It's um, yeah, we're very lucky. We're very lucky. I mean, we're very lucky to. Have, you know, have Denton come along and kind of guide us through that and get us into TV. And you realise, you know, it would have been very hard for us to get in there without him. And, yeah, it's absolutely bizarre that I'm still doing TV. I had no intention of going to TV, no dream to, was not what I wanted to do in life. And the fact that I'm still here doing it now is entirely down to the chaser and, you know, getting that start. Uh, You talk about Andrew Denton, and I also am somebody who benefited from Andrew Denton you know, um, you know, being in charge of an aspect of my career, and um, you know, he's mm. one of the co-creators of Gruen. Obviously, if people don't know that, but um, uh, and you know, a couple of the things that I really love about Andrew is, firstly, I look back and we did more uh, workshops putting the show together and working out the, what the show was going to be than we did episodes in the first year. And I think, you know, <laughs> in a world where most, you know, pilots are episode one these days because of budgetary reasons, I realise in retrospect the only reason we got the time to make the show properly is because of Andrew's reputation and they just let him yes. do that because he was Andrew Denton. <laughs> and I also respect, you know, that he stepped away from the show a very long time ago now. And I think that that's about he had a genuine commitment to giving people an opportunity and then that opportunity didn't need to be about him having given them the opportunity. He could go off and do something else and let the people just get on with what it was that they were doing. And I think that is a very admirable quality. And I think that, you know, I think it's admirable to help those who are, you know, in a position where they're going to be, you have the opportunity, you know, to do what Andrew Denton did for me or what Ted Robinson did for me or, you know, all these various different yeah. people did. You normally think, well, I can't repay them, but I can hopefully do something like that to, you know, the next generation of people or help somebody else out, you know, on the other side. And that is the maintaining of the legacy. So what do you, what's your version of that? Because I imagine you're somebody who thinks about, you know, you, like you said, you mentioned, you know, instinctively that Andrew, you know, was very responsible for giving you guys that opportunity. Like, is it something that you would like to do as a legacy as well? Offer, you know, other people opportunities? I know the Chaser have certainly done that as an organisation over the years. Yeah, look, look, it's great. Yeah, no, Denton was amazing in that he did, in a similar way, he kind of got us going in our career, but then, you know, kind of gave us freedom to go out and continue our own career. And that was, that was an amazing gift. Um, it's interesting how, you know, I was doing home delivery and Julia Zimero was like, oh, I got my start from Andrew Denton too. It's like, you go, if you go back over people's, you're a bit different. You'd already had a career, but so many people will look back and go, Andrew Denton started our career. And I, those people are really interesting. I think Charles Firth's another interesting one. I mean, Amanda Keller is yeah, such a good exactly. example, right? Can, what would have meant? I mean, Amanda Keller, who's one of Australia's greatest entertainers, mm. you know, Gold Logie nominee, like dominating breakfast radio, really, you know, 
was somebody who I don't think would have been given those opportunities, certainly in that day and age, if it hadn't been for the, you know, the unwavering support and belief that she had from Andrew. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, a lot. Of, a lot of us started with Denton, and uh, we've got to blame him. Uh, you know, I feel like I feel like, I feel, like should, I feel like we should abuse him a bit more, but you know, hopefully he won't listen. <laughs> but you know, I, uh, he, he won't. Yeah. It's okay. I reckon for the. I think about the next generation as to who the people are doing that, and I think. Charles Firth is actually still, you know, if you look at somebody like Mark Humphreys, uh, you look at, you know, a few, a lot of people on the feed and that, and they've come through Charles starting up. You know, these people love to start up new shows. You know, just let's get a new thing going, and um, no, I think that's really important. I, I mean, I love right now looking at people like, you know, Zoe Norton Lodge and Kirsten Drysdale about to have a new show coming up, and you've got Ben Jenkins and Alex Lee and all that, and people who kind of started off as literally the worst job on hamster wheel which was they'd have to watch like eight hours of breakfast television a day and log you know the moments where koshi said something stupid or the fucking cash cow vomited or something like that that was their entire job i love that they've taken that and become far better comedians and writers than any of us ever were and still going in the industry so it's really great i love seeing that um yeah i mean and it's interesting giant dwarf theater was a you know, a wonderful way to lose money. But the good side of it is the fact that he gave a venue for a lot of different, you know, people to start out. And he, he, he did work, even though it was slightly larger, it worked for shows that started with 50 people. And you see these people start with 50 people and then you'd come back six, seven months later and they'd have the whole thing would be packed out. And I love seeing that happen. And, you know, it's not through no, you know, action of my own, but just watching that happen is fantastic just by having the venue. So... Yeah, look, I, I don't think I'm the greatest mentor, in that, in that, but I love seeing people who start out with you and just going on to amazing things. I mean, the importance of a venue can't be understated, though. Like, I think that most people who are, you know, do careers doing what I do or versions of what I do have specific memories of specific nights or venues or rooms that were very instrumental in them building their career. And it, it strikes me that, you know, the effects of something like Giant Dwarf are seen immediately, but they're also going to be seen, like you said, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when that person, you know, is finally getting the mainstream opportunity to do what they were doing on stage at Giant Dwarf 15 yeah. years ago, you know, and that's where they first started building it. And there is nothing more intoxicating than seeing somebody go from, like you said, seeing something built. Like, you know, when somebody goes from like a thousand seats to 1500 seats, no one's impressed <laughs> but when somebody goes like you know you see it off this is one of the great things about the festivals that idea that a show i mean i experienced it myself in edinburgh in 1999 and it's still to this day the most exciting thing that ever happened in my career because i remember it Hughie and i were sharing a house in edinburgh in 99 and uh in the first week of my show i did seven shows and i had 35 people in total come to my show so in seven days and so if that had been an even five a night, I probably could have dealt with that, but it wasn't. There was some even some highs and lows in the 35 <laughs> over God. seven nights. And then for some reason, my show like mm. caught fire. That's that's the thing about Edinburgh is that it's one of those towns where everyone's there for the festival. And so if a show starts to get a little bit of momentum, it can suddenly change for you. And then for the next three weeks in my little hundred seat venue, we were full. Yeah. 
you know, I think pretty much every night for it's the amazing, rest of the yeah. festival. And I've never been, it's, it's never more It's amazing seeing how things change. I remember watching the Bear Pack that started out and they were quite, you know, this small audience maybe the first time and then they'd pack out Giant Dwarf and then they ended up doing the end more and you go, that's just amazing. So Carlo and Steen did that. So, yeah, I mean, look, Julian and Nikita were the main ones that ran the theatre and they did an incredible job in, you know, making it a venue that, people could really thrive in and grow in so yeah it's had to move to a smaller venue now and this is the thing you just rent the, the this is the problem is the price of rental makes artistic ventures so hard you know in sydney it's so bloody expensive so to try and make something like that even break even is very hard um and there's some alarming statistics coming out at the moment about the incredible long-term impact it's going yeah. to have on that style of entertainment going forward out of the yeah. pandemic because in the UK they're going to say they're, they're thinking that eight out of every 10 comedy venues across the UK are going to close you know or not come back they're already closed that would just won't Jeez. come back after the wow. pandemic I don't It'll only be Michael McIntyre's roadshow <laughs> I mean but you do get to that point where there'll be people who are able to survive but if where does that next generation get to hone their craft yeah. if there aren't the rooms there for them to be able to do that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's the it's the, the up and comers, the ones that are starting that are going to get hammered by this. Um, in all things, not just in comedy. It's interesting. You look at those studies that show how people that kind of leave school or university in times of recession tend to end up with a less beneficial career overall because of that start, that bad start. And, you know, you do, you do feel for people starting out. I mean, would you tell people to go to stand-up comedy, Will? What do you reckon? <laughs> I mean, I, well, I, I, there is none now, so I don't know how you would <laughs> exactly. tell somebody that. But <laughs> Yeah, what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. I, it's, it's amazing to find out, though, how useless I actually am. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, when I went into this, I knew it was running away to join the circus, but then the circus mm-hmm. went corporate. You know, the yeah. circus got bought yeah. out and, you know, it turns out that it was pretty nice to be a member of the circus, you know. You, the clowns had a car yeah. each. Everything was fine. They didn't all have to jam into the same one down at the circus. Everything was great. Um, but yeah. uh, to realise, you know, how quickly it can all be taken away and that it might not be immediately yeah. bouncing back and coming back has been a confronting thing to think about what, what, are, what are even... Like I know I'm somebody who will be able to find other employment, but to even go, well, what is that employment? <laughs> You're going to go back and take over the farm, mate? <laughs> You're going to go back, go back to, the, was it a dairy farm? It's a dairy farm. It still is. My brother has what taken you, over it. Yeah, your brother's taken So, you know, what are you going to go, go halves with him? Will he let you in or are you too useless? <laughs> I mean, I'm too useless, but I think I could pivot. If we could, like, legalise weed down there, I think it could be, like, half dairy, half weed. We half could have dairy, some real, half weed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's good. We'd sell a lot of cheese at our, you know, yeah, little yeah, market yeah. stall out the front. Or just... Mixed the two, like you get their meat, you get the cows in here, and you get this kind of milk that really makes oh. you hungry in the morning. It's like, oh, wow, boy. this milk. I'm onto my third bowl of cereal for some unknown reason. <laughs> Will's back on the farm. He's feeding yeah, weed to the cows the again, doing his experiments. <laughs> no, it is true, though. It's like, yeah, it's, there, there were parts during that first few weeks where, you know, we were we were luckily towards the end of filming something and but also going to pre-production for something else and you're just like god are we going to be able to ever film anything again or do anything like is this is the kind of am i going to have to find an entirely different career i mean right now trying to film is we're going to be filming 
part of this doco overseas, like America and that, that ain't happening. And now it's like every every few weeks it's like changes again. It's like, oh, we'll just film it in Australia. Okay, well, maybe we won't go to Western Australia. Maybe we won't go to South Australia. Oh, okay, maybe not Northern Territory. Oh, 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 what, Queensland as well? All right, maybe I'll just film this whole thing in my bedroom. <laughs> it's just going to be... <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's really hard. Okay, to do, so it's really hard to do the long drone shots in your bedroom. Depends how big your bedroom is. So uh, yeah, I always yeah. ask this question uh, on the show: What do you think happens when we die, Craig? Uh, yeah, I'm not a believer in the afterlife. Uh, you know, it's funny. My my parents did meet at Sunday school. You know, they they were they were kind of Christian to start with, but not very Christian now. And I. I've never had a particularly kind of passionate engagement with religion, really. So I'm not a big believer in the afterlife. I kind of, I guess, your legacy is kind of in what you leave behind in the world, really, not in not in somewhere else. So do, does death uh, concern you? Is it something that you think about? Are you worried about death? I'm, I'm not one of those people who worries about it a great deal, Um I'm not a big fan of the concept of it, don't get me wrong. <laughs> if I could avoid it for as long as possible, sure. I'm up for that. Uh, yeah, but uh, no, I don't. It, it's not something that worries me a great deal. It's interesting how a lot of my kids, and I think I did the same thing when I was a kid as well, you seem to go through a period where you're really fearful of death and you're really worried about your family dying and that kind of stuff. And it's a cons- consistent thing that happens, but... I think hopefully you get through that and kind of go, oh, look, most of us seem to be surviving most of the time. It'll be fine. We don't have to focus our attentions on that all the time. Um, but, yeah, there were definitely times when I was young where I kind of, you know, would wake up at night and worry about death. Amy's just come in to show me a uh, mouse that uh, um, our cat has uh, brought cool. into the house. So I turned around and just <laughs> Hello, yeah, in the corner of the office there was <laughs> just a mouse being held up. <laughs> Uh, what do you do with it? Yeah, no, we can put it in the bin. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. gross. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, uh, don't put it in your compost. It's fine. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll actually I'll check with the expert. What can we do with a, a yeah. dead mouse? Yeah, which, which coloured bin is the, yeah. is the mouse bin? <laughs> um, uh, that was literally like like after war and waste. That was literally like. You know, it was a period where people would just kind of approach me on the streets with various bits of rubbish going, what bin do I put this in? It's like, Jesus. <laughs> Is there a, I mean, guess doing a show like that and also doing a show that you're currently doing about, you know, climate change, what sort of pressure do you feel to be very across everything in that aspect? Because you know that people are going to be asking you those, because you're not an expert, but people are going to ask you the sort of questions they should be asking an expert. Yeah, oh, totally. And particularly, the, the, my God, the climate realm, you realise it's just enormous, absolutely enormous. Like the fact that you get climate scientists who are like, you know, they understand one part of the climate science stuff but not the other part, it's, it's just such a massive area. So, look, you can only be honest about what you do know and don't know, I guess, but, yeah. You gotta be very careful. What's your greatest strength, Craig? What's my greatest strength? <clears throat> I don't know. Look, I think um I think I love what I do, so I work really hard at it. It's probably it, it's interesting, I thinking about my kids and the main thing I wanna try and impart on them and not necessarily working is a work ethic. 
Um, I know you were always an extraordinary hard worker. I know you, we, you'd, we'd have you on the radio, you know, and some story will have broken that morning and you'd come in with like two pages of new gags you'd written. I know you've always been a really hard worker. And I think that's, that to me, that's, that's what distinguishes Denton as well. Like, you know, you talked about the fact that Denton made you do so many workshops beforehand. Denton was always obsessed by how much work you'd put into something <clears throat> to the point where when we were writing scripts for him, you know, you put like V17 just so he'd bother reading it because if you gave him V1 and it was perfect, he'd say, go back and do another draft. Uh, but I do think that, that you know, just you got to work hard at things to, to get to work. So, But I guess the, the, the lucky thing is finding something you enjoy doing to, to be able to do that, I guess. How do you balance your work and life? Are you good at, you know, honouring both of those things? Uh, not... not look... I don't think I've got no no in answer to that as a matter of fact the, the, the one thing I've been saying even pre-coronavirus is I've got to get a better balance in my life it's you know it's really shit house actually I don't think I have the right balance between work and family and relaxing and that what are you not when I do get time I, yeah when I get time like I love you know to relax and catch up with friends and do all that kind of stuff and love hanging out with family but I just think over the last few years I've probably filled it too much with work and it just can become draining um outside uh work what's your weakness what are you not good at my weakness outside of work outside of work <laughs> Ke- keisha uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, not not what you get told uh, your weaknesses are but no, what no, what no, do you believe your weakness is yeah it's an interesting question um it's not that I don't think I have weaknesses. I'm just kind of trying to distinguish between outside of work and I mean, probably, I think just sometimes not being enough in the moment, maybe like being a bit too distracted by things. And so you're not kind of, you know, just enjoying the fact that you're at home with the kids or something like that or getting too distracted or just being a bit impatient, really. Like I'm kind of way too impatient and that's yeah that that has flown effects to other things i guess makes you a bit grumpy at times or something like that when your friends talk about you behind your back what do you hope that they are saying (laughs) (laughs) my friends say they tend to do it to my face more than anything uh which i enjoy i love it's funny how I, i really enjoy somebody taking the piss out of me in a really great way to my face it's really good so you know i um, I don't know. What's that gap tooth moron doing? I don't know. What's the uh, what, what? What do they say? <laughs> no. What, I mean, what would you hope they <laughs> what say? Would hope what they what say? would they if they're saying nice things? Well, uh, what would you hope they I say? I think I just hope they'd say I was a good friend. Really, like um, I do try and you know, got a good core group of friends, uh, most of them who are not in the industry in any way, and that's my main kind of group of friends and. I try and catch up with them as much as possible. <clears throat> I've got some of them going through health problems at the moment, all different problems, and we try and kind of keep up as much as we can. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they'd say, but that, I guess they just hope they say, good friend, yeah. I just hope that they're not all, all just meeting. Uh, I just hope they're not all secretly me. I hope they're not saying, gee, I hope Craig doesn't find out we're beating together. <laughs> I, hope, I hope Craig doesn't walk into this pub. <laughs> It's okay. We've got his shooting schedule. We know he's in someone's bin right now. Yeah, exactly. We can get together, guys. Yes. Go, go, go. Exactly. Quickly. 
Um, our uh, wonderful MBN and internet connection is getting even fuzzier than it has been. We've fought on pretty bravely, mm. I think, during this. There's been a couple oh, of uh, times, but it hasn't been hasn't been too bad. Uh, but uh, we're getting towards the end. I have two big questions cool. before we go, and then I'll let you go. Thank you so much. By the way, I'll do a proper plug for the. Uh, the telly show in the intro as well, but I do. I've seen the first episode, and I do recommend if you're interested in any way in climate change, um, but particularly if you've got somebody who you think um, also needs to be interested in it and can be interested in it in a accessible and fun, uh, but also still interesting and thought provoking way. It's going to be a really great show for that i think you know there's some really fun executions of how we you know burst people's misconceptions about energy use and you know as you said there's a bit of you know chaser style stunt work but (laughs) in such a really you know fun and exciting and uh you know a great point behind it all so i i I do recommend the show i I got i got um i got i got heavied by the federal police more than i've ever got actually during this show it's really interesting like the um they're normally really good at kind of getting you away from a politician but not using much force but when i was chasing scott morrison in this show fuck they really um they really use some muscle (laughs) yeah they're getting Getting a bit more fierce in their old age. Uh, very interesting. They're like, he's an old man. We can take him now. Yeah. <laughs> they've, they've had you on their board in their office for a while. And they're just like, next chance we get, we are running this fucker through. So um, I, two questions. If you could have a skill, any skill in the world, you don't have to learn how to do this. You don't have to put in your 10,000 hours. This is literally just fantasy camp, you know, magic wand you get to have any skill in the world. What is the skill that you most desire? Wow. Fuck you asked hard questions. <laughs> the skill of answering hard philosophical questions from Will Anderson would be good right now. <laughs> um, uh, um, uh, yeah, what tell me though. I'm like? not going to let you off with a joke. I'd really like to know. No, what know. is it that you'd really like I, to be I, good I at? I know. You, I've, I've, I heard your, your chat with McAuliffe. You know, it's funny that the people that just... <laughs> Uh, use jokes to not engage with emotional issues. You know? <laughs> uh, fuck, what skill do I like? I mean, maybe it's interesting talking about, you know, understanding the need to understand other people's problems to try and solve them, to have the right approach, like, you know, a, a greater level of empathy maybe so you can really understand what other people are going through and what their perspective is would be a really great superpower to have, uh, particularly nowadays, I think. Um, so that would be a fascinating to get, a, you know, super empathy. That would be an amazing skill, although it, it would probably make life... What, a, what an overwhelming thing to do, though, like to have to walk in everybody, like yeah, walk a mile in it would everybody make life else's hell. shoes would be an incredibly tough thing to do. It would make... It would be kind of like how this kind of... You know, hearing everyone's voices at once, it would probably suck. So, I, yeah, that was a terrible answer. Uh, I want less empathy <laughs> so that I can host Sky News. <laughs> exactly. Finally, make some money out of this instead of doing fucking documentaries about the planet on the ABC. Apparently. It's this fucking empathy. Yeah, yeah. If you could just get rid of this, I could host the Today Show, motherfucker. Yeah, I skill. Well, I didn't. What skill would I want? You ever wanted to like cook really well or play a musical instrument that you know fly? Uh, I, I, no, the, well, the thing I desperately want to do is surf. I, I regret never learning to surf. Whenever I see pe- surfers, 
And the fact that they just get up at like, oh, we were filming the other day down at <clears throat> Curl Curl and the place was packed. It was the middle of winter. It's packed with all these old guys fucking in their steamers surfing at like 6.30 in the morning. It's freezing. I've got like 20 layers on. Husco, that kind of, the ability to be able to travel around the beauty of Australia and kind of surf and have a reason to do it, it would just be awesome. So I regret not surfing. Not exactly, you know, uh, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of a skill. Uh, I'd love to be able to do that. Mate, I, I, the ability to just be able to surf, because this is my magic wand. You don't have to learn how to do it. I could just, you know, give you the ability to surf really well now. Oh, so I you think that's a great answer. Because you could see, I didn't realise that you had the power yeah. to actually give it. Well, no, you, no, you went with, you went with uh, super empathy, so that's oh, what you're sorry. getting. It's first, first answer, it's locked in answer. We're just oh. speculating on what would have been better damn, answers at this point. Damn it. <laughs> you, you could have had surfing. <laughs> Instead, you're feeling everybody yeah, in the world's yeah. pain during one of the most painful times yeah. in our entire history so good luck Tiger. So that's what it's like to be Will Anderson oh my god oh my god I didn't realise he had such a deep complex life <laughs> uh, final question uh, along with my magic wand I also have a time machine uh, my time machine can take you back to any point in history it's a, it's a round trip you can go to any point in history. You can observe or change it. You can go to any point in your own life and observe or change that. You don't have to kill Hitler. We'll send back someone more qualified to kill Hitler than you. Um, no. But in a general sense, <laughs> where would you like to go? What would you like to do? So you can change things. You're not just looking at it, right? Yep. <clears throat> you can. Wow. Um, the amazing thing about history is that if you look back, so much of it has been so incredibly brutal and terrible. It's hard to actually isolate one moment where you could, you know, where you wouldn't go back and change a lot of it. And I, I always think so it's that, So that's your super empathy kicking in already. <laughs> See, this is... <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> look <laughs> how quickly it works. Yeah. But what's, what's always amazing about that is, is you go, well, actually, it's nothing to do with history even. Like if you look now around the world... There are so many parts of the world where essentially they are still living in a time where, you know, homosexuality is banned, where <clears throat> women are not treated equally, where where you can still have your life taken for such arbitrary reasons and that kind of stuff. And you go, wow, fucking, it's not that history's massively changed, it's that we're in this extremely lucky blip, really. You know, the kind of way we live is just so ridiculously privileged you know the lifestyle we have in australia is incredible <clears throat> so um, super it's super level of empathy yeah. you're showing there i really <laughs> i'm getting a big super empathy sense off you right now <laughs> you know it's not a there's well, bad bad times in history but there's bad times right now put yourself into the yeah. shoes of those child soldiers why well, won't you do that well we'll shut the fuck up it's your fault man if you'd given me a second chance i'd be surfing right now <laughs> Instead of feeling this pain, I mean, you really got to set out the rules a lot clearer at the beginning of this magic, philosophical journey. <laughs> so, what part of history? I mean, I mean, if I just to choose from something I love, I would go back to ancient yes. Rome because that's the kind of era I was obsessed by when I was younger and loved. And but, where, um, what in what in Rome? Is there a particular sort of you know? piece of like the history of rome like a time an event something that you would you know like to observe or take part in i just think that that that, that whole kind of empire was amazing really like it's kind of all actually you know the thing no you know what i'd love to do <clears throat> i'd love to go back to easter island and answer the question about how it actually got fucked up on easter island because that's such a 
interesting area, you know, and then you can either come back going, Jared Diamond, you were wrong, motherfucker, or you're right, or whatever. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so (laughs) just just go back in time to prove other authors wrong. (laughs) Uh, okay, all right, here we go. Um, the show is called uh, The Fight, is it called Fight for Planet B? Fight for Planet A, sorry, Fight (laughs) for Planet A. Planet (laughs) Planet. Will's given up on Planet A already. He's like, well, we can fight for Planet B, I guess. Uh, it's on the ABC. Uh, how many episodes is it? It's three episodes, uh, starting on August 11th, I think. God, this is always the hardest. This is this is an even harder question than than the superpower one. When is your show on? Yeah, Tuesday 11th of August. Well, yet another show from there, ABC. Sean McAuliffe (laughs) makes a documentary about how we can't drink. (laughs) And now Rucastle is here to spoil our fun about (laughs) it. I'm not here to spoil. I'm I'm here to show you that you can have the same life pretty much, but just in a safe way, you know, for the environment. For the next generation. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> my empathy's run out for you, okay, Anderson? <laughs> hey, uh, thank you very much for doing this today, mate. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Let's uh, hope one of these several recording mechanisms has worked, hey? Yes, exactly. Exactly.